0: Charlie, what's up?
1: Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, welcome to 2021. We're back with the US Soccer Podcast. It feels so good and we're starting off with a good guest.
1: I can't wait, it's, it's, it's been too long. I've been, I've been enjoying the break, but I've missed this, so let's get going.
0: This is crazy.
2: This is absolutely insane. Such at a loss for words. I mean, I'll find them, don't worry. Do
1: y'all like playing against adversity? Man, I just like playing, period. I'm just, I'm shocked, and I'm so proud of our guys, man. Unbelievable.
0: Putting the crest on every single time means something to me. All right, here he is, coach of the under-23 men's national team, Jason Kreis.
1: Welcome to the show, Jason. You're the first guest in 2021. Congratulations on making your U.S. soccer podcast debut. How does it feel? How's the pandemic treated you and your family during this time? (laughs)
2: it's obviously been a crazy 2020 i think we're all excited about kind of putting that behind us and putting some of these scenarios behind us myself for the you know in my role as the u 23 head coach i'm just super excited to get back on the field with these guys it's been since march since we had a camp and we're really eager about what lies ahead in 2021 we feel like there's all kinds of opportunities for these players to make big impact for the u23 group as well as the full national team so a lot on our plate moving forward, and we just couldn't be more excited to get it all started.
0: I love hearing that and just knowing that you guys are back in camp. I think, first of all, what was that like these last few months? How were you managing keeping in touch with players and evaluating them when there weren't games and there were games and making sure that they were getting better in that time?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's such a long window of time. It kind of started off with one process and moved towards another. At the beginning process when nobody was playing games and nobody was training, it was mostly just about reaching out to the guys and just seeing how their mental health was. It was a difficult time for all of us not being able to get out or socialize. Uh, And we have a lot of young guys that are kind of living on their own for the first time. So it's important just to make sure that they were keeping themselves busy, staying active. You know, the questions were about, could we provide you workout assistance? If your club's not providing you exactly what you need, can we reach out and help? And then it moves along to the games and now you're looking at, you know, how are they performing in those matches. So that's that kind of gets you back into a normal phase of of the world and what you're doing as a national team coach. So that that seemed to to move forward nicely. And then the end of the year, you know, I spent in particular the last two camps working with Greg as his assistant. So really nice for me to see in person what some of that some of those young players look like both in Europe as well as the domestic camp. So. Um, although it was a, a year of difficulties, I felt like I kept pretty busy.
1: And, and you also are, are making the most of the year, which is which is also incredible. I know you're in camp with a talented U23 squad right now. But before we get into that, let's take it back to your career as a player, because we we be we would be oh. doing you an injustice if we didn't do, we do have that. To? So, yes, do we, have we do. <laughs> uh, oh, no. You scored 108 goals in, in your MLS career. So. We have to talk about that. You're one of the most prolific goal scorers uh, in, in MLS history. So you're the 1999 MLS MVP. you got some of the, the most fond memories. I know you do. So we're going to pull them out. What, what do you remember about your career? What were the highlights?
2: Oh, I mean, it's easy to jump right to that year in 1999. Um you know, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the the 1997 U.S. Open Cup win that I was a part of there in Dallas. Um, but obviously, the most sort of individually rewarding time was 1999. Um, it also happened to coincide with the birth of my first son, Kaysen, uh, And I always have looked at that year as if, you know, he was somewhat of my lucky charm. Um, I, it was a change in my life. Obviously, anybody that has kids knows what that feels like when you have your very first and and how that can change your life uh, and settle you down and give you a different perspective and i feel like that all kind of came together in that year uh, as well as a position change um, i went from being an attacking-minded midfielder to being moved up front in 1998 the the, the latter part of 98 was the first time i'd ever played forward uh, and so you know all again kind of positionally everything kind of fell into place for me to to be in front of the goal oftentimes to finish off everybody else's hard work So. Um, really, really special year for me from, from an individual point of, point of view. Um, and my career, you know, I obviously I enjoyed it. There's certainly things I look back on and wish I had done a little bit differently. Um, wish I had been able to even have the opportunity to be in an MLS Cup final or win an MLS Cup. That's certainly something that left a little bit to be desired. But, um, yeah, um, good, good career. And I think ultimately I got a lot out of uh, my abilities, probably I would say, you know, I feel like I outperformed what I was what I was given, but um, certainly willing to work hard for everything that I got.
0: I love that you point out that adaptation of going from a, a central midfield position into a, a front runner position, because that's probably something that you see or look for in players too. how can we utilize them in the best way and use that experience that you got had from your playing career into coaching as well.
2: Yeah, no, there's no doubt that you, you, you oftentimes when you're coaching a team or looking at a team from more of a broader perspective, you'll see guys that are really, really good players, but they happen to be in a position that's behind somebody that's even better. Um, but you look around a little bit and try to figure out, you know, where, where could you move that player to best utilize his abilities and to best, to best put together a team full of, of, of brighter prospects.
0: For you, you mentioned that helped you score a lot more goals, getting in front of goal, to, you know, finishing the products of everybody around you. I know that's what goal scorers say, but you did some of the work too. Is there a goal that sticks out to you that you remember the most and you can still almost feel it?
2: Um listen, first and foremost, most goal scorers would say that they did all the hard work. Let's be fair. I mean most strikers have big, big egos. Well I was so. trying to make Charlie feel like he, uh? Char- he would say Charlie's the same case in so. point. Charlie's a case in point. <laughs> No, um, uh, you know, the most special goal is probably the hundredth. Um, to be honest, it's the one that sticks out in my mind the most. It was a, a pretty well taken goal. Um, it was assisted by a friend of mine that I played a long, long time with in in Dante Washington. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the goal was special. It was celebrated special, and um, it was a landmark occasion.
1: You have fourteen caps with the U.S. Women's National Team. You scored a goal against Jamaica. We ask everyone on this pod about their first cap experience. Walk us through that moment you received the word you were getting called up, and when you you enter the field.
2: Yeah, um, really. I mean, my national team experience is interesting, really, really interesting, um, and certainly not something I look back on and say, "Oh, what a huge success it was." Uh, I had wanted more, obviously wanted to do a lot more, and kind of left a hunger in my stomach all the time about that situation, but. The first time I got the first time I got called up was actually for a um, for a Saudi Arabia game, um, and it was even before I think before the league even started. So I didn't really know what I was doing there. <laughs> I was a little bit lost <laughs> to try to figure out why I was a part of this group with all these incredible players. But I soaked up that experience, and then about I think almost a year later, maybe eight months later. I got called up again for an El Salvador match, and the funny part of that story—and this was my first cap—and the really funny part about that story was I was dreadfully sick um, the entire week. You know, I, we had played the LA Galaxy the weekend before that call up. I played really ill in that game and managed to score two goals. It was like one of those things where you're just you're 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 not feeling great, so you're not even thinking about how you're performing. You're just doing it. Um, it was a great game for me. I scored two really good goals, but then it got sicker as the week went along. So. We got too close to the match, and Steve, Steve Sampson was the coach at that time, and he asked me how I felt and how I felt about playing. And, of course, being young and naive, I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I want to play. Um, and I went out there and played 45 minutes, and I was awful. Um, so <laughs> I think I probably got sucked out at halftime. And looking back on it, I wish I'd probably had a little bit more experience to say, no, this is probably isn't the right time for my first cap. But anyway, I went for it, good experience. And, and yeah, the the first goal, the only goal I scored for the national team was – was huge for me. I think I almost broke down into tears after the goal. And that was another special occasion because it was assisted by none other than the great Brian McBride. Mm.
0: I want to know why, why do you think you were almost brought to tears? What emotions were you feeling in that moment? Because that's, I mean, I can try to figure that out, but, or subject of what I would feel, but I want to know from your perspective in that moment, when the ball goes in the back of the net, what's Mm -hmm. that feeling like?
2: It's deeper than that. Um, It's deeper than that. And it comes from just being, I think, a a young player moving up through developmental ages and wanting to be a part of regional teams. Back in our day, there was the ODP, Olympic Development Program, wanting to be a part of regional teams, never being selected for those, wanting to be a part of national team pools, never being selected for those. And then finally get into a professional stage where I was able, I think, to show a little bit more about what I was about. And now getting your first national team experience as already a professional player at 23, 24 years old. And so for me, you know, to represent my country was always the the, the penultimate goal. It was, for me, it meant more than trying to find a career in Europe or, you know, the money that I was making or anything else. For me, the 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 um, the honor to, to represent my country was second to none. And I can remember it wasn't just that scoring that goal. Of course, the goal was an extremely emotional experience because it felt like, okay, I may have now finally arrived a little bit. But for me, it was every national anthem when I was in the lineup. You know, to be a part of those national anthems on the field before those games was super emotional as well.
1: Well, you touched on the emotional experience as a player. Now walk me through the emotional experience as a coach because you made that transition (laughs) from player Uh to coach and in 2009, you find yourself winning an MLS Cup with Real Salt Lake. What, what was special about that season? Can you walk us through h- how that developed into a championship?
2: Yeah, um, again, I mean, the, the experience as a coach is quite different um, than being a player because, you know, as a player, you you have a lot to worry about. There's no doubt about it. You have a lot of the right things to do to prepare yourselves for matches. You have, you know, the sleep and the rest and the training that you need to take Uh, during the week and all these sort of boxes you need to check uh, but those are minuscule compared to all the boxes you need to check as a coach Uh, and not having a whole lot of realization about that when I went from playing to coaching was a was an interesting learning process for me Um, but to get to 2009 after being uh, the head coach of Real Salt Lake for most of 2007 and 2008 um to get to that moment was was pretty incredible because again similar to to any person's career in any job you know there was so many ups and downs so many ups and downs and so many inconsistencies and so many times where you win and then you lose and you win and you lose and it's just you know it's it's an emotional roller coaster at times but the the end of that season was similar to the end of 2008 where we really went on a run we started to come into some real form. And as a coach, you know, you now have this mo- these moments where you look out and you say, this is what I have envisioned. This is the soccer that I really, really love. And it, it's now some evidence that these guys are applying what we're trying to teach. So super, super rewarding. To, to Those moments are super rewarding and, and sometimes super fleeting. Um, but the guys really, really put it all together at the end of that season and went on a fantastic run to win it.
0: When you started that season, did you think that you had the quality to end up where you did or did you feel like it was accumulation of some of the years and the work that you had put in over a few years?
2: No, certainly, certainly not, never felt at the beginning of that season that we were, we were an MLS cup contender, no chance. Um, I think, I think what we wanted to do was we wanted to develop some consistency So the year before we had made the playoffs for the first time in 2008, and we went on a nice run then too. As I said, we lost in the conference final barely in a game. I don't think we should have lost to the Red Bull. Um, And I think we would have given Columbus a good match uh, for the final that year. So in 2009, we're just looking for some consistency. We're wanting that, that, that success that we had at the end of 2008 to turn into more consistency. And it didn't come. It didn't come easy. So it was certainly, a, I felt like a very much multi-year process, a two-and-a-half-year process to get us to the place where we felt like we could compete at the end of the season. At that Now at the end of the season, I, if you'd asked me, I'd have said, yeah, we're in with a chance here, but certainly not at the beginning of 2009.
1: You, you've coached RSL. You win an MLS Cup. You go on to coach New York City FC in, in their inaugural year, and you have you know, Dava Villa and Andre Pirlo, and Lampard, you have all these big names and you go to Orlando City and you have Kaká. What lessons have you learned along the way that have helped you become a better coach?
2: I don't think we have time enough to go through all the lessons <laughs> I've learned, Charlie. The biggest, the biggest we can, one. We <laughs> could be here for a long time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you the just the biggest one, I think. Uh, and the biggest one is is that I've learned is that that no matter the no matter the name uh, of the player or necessarily what they've done in their career or, you know, how big they are, how many golden balls they won um, or World Cups they won, uh, all of these guys are still the same. They, they want to be instructed, they want to improve, and they want to compete. Uh, and that was, that was a difficult lesson for me to learn, um, certainly in that, in that first year at New York City. Uh, with via to, to kind of understand that this player may not necessarily want to be working with me about kind of helping and improving the team. He just wants to play. And he, <laughs> and so I had come from a, a cultural environment that we had created at real salt lake that was very collaborative, uh, and very much driven on feedback from the leaders of the team. Uh, and you go into a situation like that, and you need to understand that every team and every leader is different. Um, and so to work with a player like that, you you need to understand sometimes they they don't want to be worried about giving feedback. They just want to compete, and they just want to do everything they can to perform at the highest level and be elite. Um, and so I think that's the, the biggest takeaway is that sometimes, and I felt very much like that when I went there, it was almost a deference to a player like that. And as a coach, you can't, you can't do that. You you need to lead and you need to show that you, you know what you're doing and you're where you belong to be.
0: And you hear it all the time, just when you get to the professional level, how it is about coaching, but it's also about managing, like you're saying, managing the personalities and what specific players need out of specific situations. And man, that's, I don't know. Would you say half the battle or more than half the battle? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, my experience, again, will tell me that that coaching professionally is very different than coaching uh, youth, right? I mean, in in the youth levels, you you need to do a lot of teaching, you need to do a lot of instructing, you need to do a lot of communicating. Uh, At the professional level, I still think there's that aspect. It doesn't just go away completely, but you've got now just this whole different thing where you need to manage um, because you have a team and because you have players that you need to figure out how to get the best out of them. It's not going to be a situation where you can come into a team and just say, okay, all you guys, you guys are all out because you don't fit my plan. You need to understand that's, that there's a lot of these players that there's there's no there's no out or in. They just are important players. They're good players, and you got to figure out how to get them on your side and manage them the correct way.
1: I mean, I think you, 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 you couldn't have put it better. It's just, uh, you know, we're always growing in, in- – All of the fields that we choose, and it's always an evolution and a change. And now you find yourself with the under-23 U.S. team. Um, What a a group that you you have, too, in front of you, a talented group of players. What drew you to this job of coaching this team?
2: The opportunity to coach the U23s was huge for, for really two big reasons. Um, the first big reason, as I touched on before, it's it's an opportunity to to represent my country in, in my field of work. Uh, to be able to to coach a team and and wear the US badge and put my hand over my heart for for national anthems four games is is too great to, I think, ever pass up. You always have to give that extremely serious consideration and and going further than that, to be a part of an Olympics is is a lifelong experience. I mean that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, I, I wasn't afforded it as a player. I was, you know, three days too old for the age cutoff uh, for the 1996 Olympics, and always have kind of blamed my mom for for three having days. me a little early. Um, so you know, it's I, I I I think about it as an opportunity that couldn't be passed up. And the second big part of that was is an ability again to work with younger players. Uh, and try to have an influence on their development um, as players, help them move along in their careers, both with their clubs and hopefully working with future national team, full national team potentials. Um, but also to kind of work with them as as a development uh, as people, as young men. So yeah,
0: such a cru- such a crucial age. I I wonder we t- we spoke about the challenges that you had as a professional coach. What have the challenges been with this age group in particular uh, when you're talking about how you do mentor them and coach them it, almost in the same breath?
2: Yeah, I you know again the biggest challenge I think that we face has to do with call ups uh, and availabilities of the players. And so for the you know the very first camp that I went into as the coach was in Spain, um, and the group that we had was like literally all of these players came to us and none of them were playing with their clubs and so you know here you're in an environment where literally these players are feeling really negative about themselves they're at a moment where things aren't going well they're not playing as much as they'd like to they may be not playing at all one situation was you know the the fans in his club were really down on him because he wasn't producing what they thought that he should be producing and so really it was interesting to to sit down with all these players and understand wow you know (laughs) I'm working with all these guys that aren't feeling real great about themselves right now so that's an added challenge and not in great form and so to move from that camp to to the camp since I feel like every camp we've been able to get a few more players that are in good form and feeling good about themselves Uh, and so it's now now a little less of a mental challenge and a little more of a tactical and technical challenge so That's been a good thing, but you know it continues to be really, really quite challenging to get all the players that you want. And so, when you're organizing these camps, you're oftentimes starting with a list that looks like 50 players, and kind of saying, "Okay, of these 50, how many of you guys are available? Okay, of those that are available, here's the ones we're going to select." So, and there's been a few been a few camps where you're literally not having to make selections; you're just taking who's available.
1: All right, now I need to get into the specifics of this. Yeah, the the challenge of, of getting these players released for camp. So let's say I'm going to just call out a random player uh, on your squad right now, Eric Williamson, right? He's, he's central to what Portland do. Um, him and, and, and Diego Chara are really the staples in the mid center of the midfield for, for the Portland mm-hmm. Timbers. If you mm-hmm. go to call him up, how does, how does that, what does that look like? How, how mm-hmm. are they able to release him? And, and I'm sure there are a number of other players who are central to their team success. How difficult is it for you to get these players to come into, let's say, an Olympic qualifying camp?
2: Yeah. So interesting. And I I want to kind of tell you a little bit of side portion to what you've asked, because Eric Williamson's position has completely changed. Okay. So, uh, right, a year ago or a year and a half ago, you asked him to come into camp and Portland's like, absolutely. You know, he's just playing USL minutes for us. What a great opportunity for him to develop and listen to a different voice. And now a year later, that call up, that same call up may be quite challenged (laughs) because as you said, he's a, he's an integral figure. And so I think that it's, it's impossible to kind of give too general and I mean, too specific an answer here because every club has a different scenario that they're faced with, you know, every, every club, maybe, maybe it's Portland. Let's, let's try to stay on the specific example. Maybe it's Portland and Portland's having a bad time. So they're in a bad way. The last six games, they haven't won a game They're at the bottom of the conference That's that situation becomes a little more stressful for them to release a guy like Eric Williamson, than if they're doing really well, you know, they're more towards the top of the table, they feel secure about their playoff position, Uh, maybe they're not a part of the CONCACAF Champions League, or maybe they are. So there's all these different considerations that we need to be comprehending and understanding and working with the clubs through. Um, And, you know, our biggest challenge is try to have try to have a heads up about everybody's scenario before we're actually sitting down trying to make these call ups so that we can we can do some planning. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things is to do some actual real longer term planning about who is or who isn't going to be available for camps.
0: It's interesting when you talk about that, too, because then you also think from the player's perspective, if in this example, if you're Eric and your team is at the bottom of the table and you get called into camp. You're like, do I stay with my club team or do I go Mm -hmm. represent my country in a really important uh, moment that could potentially lead me to the Olympics? That's a lot of pressure on these players as well.
2: Yeah. No, again, you know, different, different times create different pressures on decisions. And, you know, I think it does, I think ultimately though, for a player, and i go back to my own experience here. I mean, for a player, just that opportunity to represent, represent any national team just doesn't come along often enough. And so I think from from that point of view, I, I would and, and this I never ever as a coach would put any pressure on a player to not go into a national team camp. For me, it was just like this is this is these opportunities just don't come along often enough. I mean, at the end of at the end of the day, when you're old and retired like me, you know, those are the moments that you look back upon fondly and 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 would I would think if you didn't take one of those opportunities, you would be sorely mistaken about that.
1: Yeah. Jason, I remember, um, you know, getting calls up, getting called up to the U23 team, and uh, you know, for me, those are some of the best years of my life. We created a great atmosphere within the group, and I look at this team, and everyone is so talented. Um, how do you go about creating the culture within this this squad with limited opportunities to get these guys together?
2: Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's about delivering a pretty clear message, and this is something that I I, I give a lot of credit to to Greg Berhalter about, um, because he's really, really defined a clear vision for what it means to be part of a U.S. Men's National Team program. Uh, And so, you know, it's been fairly easy for me to just adapt that, to take that and say, we are part of the full national team. And it's important that you guys understand that we're looking for the same things here from a cultural point of view. We're looking for the same values here. Um, And so, you know, those, those things are are clearly defined, clearly dictated to the players when they come into camp and clearly repeated over and over and over again in everything that we do. Uh, you know, Every single day on the training session, we're getting reminders about those things. Every time we're at a meal, we're doing things together to to enjoy ourselves, to socialize, um, and to start to form those connections that I think are really, really critical to any US, U.S. national team program.
0: And it also makes it, when you're just speaking of that, I go back to your earlier point about having a list of 50 players and Hmm. maybe just getting the players that are actually available and how when you have such a clear cut culture and defined what you need out of these players you can look at those 50 players and they can come in and know exactly what's expected of them
2: yeah i mean that's the hope that's the hope and i think that has been you know you look at um if i look if we look at the the difficulties with calling players in you can look at that from a negative point of view. It's clearly easy to do that and say, man, how am I developing consistency? How are we really preparing ourselves in the best way? Or you can look at it from a positive point of view and say, look at how many players now we've been able to bring in. I mean, the number of players that have that have come into a U23 camp is astronomical. Uh, and so now we've been able to to influence a whole lot more lives. We've been able able to broaden our pool such that hopefully, you know, they come in for a qualification. And it won't be any of their first time coming in. They all have an idea, a remembrance of, of, of what we're looking for.
0: I think that's kind of where we got to go next because this is an important camp because it's leading into qualification. Um, but it, it's different, right? Cause you were prepared to qualify for the Olympics last March, and then it gets shifted. How is this camp and maybe this group of players different and what are you, um, is there any difference in the preparation this year as you get ready to qualify in March?
2: Yeah, you know, last year, the the January camp was similar to this in that we had a lot of U23 age eligible players, a lot of the guys that we were planning on leaning on for March qualification. Um, This camp is a little different because it's a little bigger. So now we have even more, uh, a higher number of U23 age eligible players that could potentially help us to qualify um, in March. Um, the group, but but what's interesting though is that this this group is different and that we've we've got quite a few players here. I think the number is eight, seven or eight players that haven't actually been a part of a U23 camp yet. Uh, and so you know, last year at this time, I don't think there was anybody that, w- that had been in the January camp that hadn't been already a part of our our group before that. So what we are seeing is that there's there's a bit more teaching and coaching and understanding for these guys to go through. Uh, to best prepare them for march so we have to feel very fortunate that we have this opportunity to get them together
1: has anyone come in and just completely surprised you or has there any players that have have come in and you thought i think for this team for my squad we're going to play you in a different position than what you're used to and then they've done well in that position um, that we can anticipate
2: well, we're just uh 3 days in, so I think it would be unfair for me to make any judgments <laughs> right, Charlie. As a player, you probably wouldn't have been wa- yeah. wouldn't have been wanted to be judged nope, after 3 days. Definitely not. So, give me a couple no. weeks. In <laughs> January nonetheless.
1: We'll, yeah, we'll we'll right? give them
2: all a, we'll give them all another week and then we'll make our judgments. Okay. No. Um yeah, no. Everybody's done done a good job and it's difficult at this at this stage, you know, having been off. Now all of them have been off at least a month and some of these guys have been off multiple months. Um, so, you know, we're, we're settling in here. Um, the guys all, the one thing I would say is the guys are all fit. So we don't feel like we've got guys that are unfit and possible injuries and having to monitor or adapt their training. So all right, everybody, I think everybody's in a good place to to put their best foot forward as we move forward.
1: Well, you touched on fitness. Who are the standouts? Who are the standouts as far as the like <laughs> well, beep well,
2: test and uh, fitness yeah. test? Oh gosh. See Charlie again. We're not we're not playing. Back in our days, it was a beep test or a Cooper <laughs> yeah. test. There's there's we don't do that anymore. What? No sign me up for this no. national but, yeah. team. Yeah. Where was this January
1: camp when I existed? No, I know.
2: None of that. Oh. None of
1: that fitness <laughs> stuff
0: thinking about the beep test <laughs> yeah.
1: gave me nightmares.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: well, for the roster in general, where do you feel like the most depth in this squad is then?
2: You know, again, it's interesting uh, because last year I would have told you right away. I would have been a quick answer. I would have said central mm-hmm. defender. Um, and this year, you know, we've lost Mark McKenzie. We, we don't have a guy like Justin Glad in this group who's been around this group a long time. So we're looking at lots of brand-new players in that position. So I don't know that I've got an exact handle to tell you that, that that's where we're, we're the strongest. I mean, again, a year ago, a guy like Chris Richards, you're thinking he may be a part of things, and now the guy's playing for Bayern Munich. So not much of a chance that we'll see him for qualification. So it's, I have, don't have quite as, as good a feel on that. I would, I would say probably central midfield are our area of, of most depth and strength as well as right-backs a pretty easy one to say as well
1: well you've managed professionally since 2007 where is this current group rank in terms of quality compared to years past of you you know coaching younger younger talented players
2: well this is easy for me i mean it's it's not easy in that i haven't you know i haven't worked with uh, youth teams before i haven't worked with a specific u23 team before i've only been looking from afar at what our under 17s under 20s and under 23s look like i have never worked there so it's it's a little unfair for me to say, but I do think it's fair for me to say that this is an incredibly exciting time uh, for U.S. national team fans uh, and people that are in, involved in any way with the U.S. men's uh, soccer program because the, the level of talent that we have at these young ages and the level of experiences these guys are getting is, is, are absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, and, I, and I've been saying this for a year and a half, not having seen the likes of what I saw in the November camp in Europe. Um, I, I think that the potential for, for our players and the potential for what we may be able to put together over the next four or five years is, is absolutely incredible.
0: What do you credit that to, Jason, the emergence of such young, talented players who can step in and play big roles?
2: For me, this is easy. It's super easy. I credit it to the coaching. I credit, to, credit it to the job that's being done on a day-by-day basis all across our country. Um, I, I, you know, I think that we have, we have given our youth development platform a lot of hard time over the past 10 to 15 years, and there's been a lot of complaining uh, about the fact that we're not developing quality players and a lot of complaining about all the failures we've, we've had trying to produce uh, professional players. And I think now's the time to say that's enough. You know, we have people that are doing tremendous jobs um, in our youth development. I think it was a tremendous decision to, to come up with this, the, the DA as it was and now moving forward into another academy platform where we're really, really focused on trying to develop these players, not only for their clubs, but for their country. Uh, and so I just want to take this opportunity to give credit where credit is due to all of the coaches out there. That have been working tirelessly to help us develop these players because they're doing a tremendous job.
1: You don't get these guys together often. Um, we, we've talked about that, but in a camp like this, what has been the area you're focusing on the most with, when you're when you're working with this group?
2: We're gonna we're gonna focus on a couple of things. Um, really, really detailed. We've started off the first week all about what we're doing with the ball. We're particular interested in what we're doing in the midfield third and in the mid third. Uh, building through the mid third and then finishing our attacks, creating goal scoring chances next week. We'll flip it around a little bit and talk really what we're doing without the ball uh, and how we want to affect pressure to our opponent to, to win the ball in good areas and move forward quickly to create goal scoring chances.
0: Okay. Let's look ahead a little bit. Olympic qualifying just around the corner. You're going to face Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, and Mexico in your group Mm -hmm. challenges that you foresee with these opponents when you just see them right here. i'm sure you've been watching a ton of film but let's let's start costa rica maybe a point or two for each of these these teams
2: yeah you know, um i will say you know i think it should be known it's difficult it's difficult to get video of these opponents because you know what have they been doing in the last year pretty similar yeah, to us <laughs> right pretty similar Great to point. us they, they <laughs> haven't been playing so uh, but no we we went into last uh march with a pretty pretty good you know clear view of what we we expected you know, we expect um, Costa Rica to be playing in what looks like a 4-2-3-1 slash 4-3-3, um, defending more out of a 4-4-2. Although they threw some some uh, interesting stuff in the last game that they played right before the preparations, defending more in a 4-3-3. Dominican Republic was a straight 4-3-3 defense and attack, uh, and then Mexico is also also playing out of a 4-3-3. Um, it, it's an interesting group and in that you've got two really, really strong teams and there's only two teams and hopefully we can count ourselves as a third, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah. so three really strong teams and only two get to come out of the group to, to basically put yourself in that game. That's going to get you qualified. So it's a challenge for us. There's no doubt about it, but we do like the order of the games. So we play Costa Rica first. We play Dominican Republic second. And then we get to go into that game with, with Mexico as the third game with, I think a really, really clear picture of what we'll need in that game. Um, And I think the also the really nice thing about being in the same group as Mexico is we guarantee ourselves to not play them in the semifinal round in that game that's that will hopefully qualify us for the Olympics.
1: Let's go. (laughs) I'm I'm pumped. Okay.
0: When you're looking towards those games and what you just said about not really knowing much about the opponent as to the same. They don't know much about you. As you Mm -hmm. said, you've changed a lot. This has to be a very us focused time. How can we perform best for ourselves and be able to adapt on the fly? Is that kind of mm. the, the stuff that you're prepping this team with?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, again, goes speaking to the culture piece that we talked about before. That falls right in line with, with some of our values. Being able to adapt, being ready to adapt, being, being ready for any situation that's thrown our way. Uh, and that's great, right? I mean, that's, that's 2020 right there in a nutshell. You know, all these yeah. challenges come in our way and we're just going to figure out ways to keep stepping over them and move on to the next one.
1: So in your eyes, what is a successful camp?
2: I think a successful camp is just for me, first and foremost, having a clearer picture of what the pool looks like and a clearer picture on what that qualification roster should look like. So You know, that's been conveyed to the players that this is a massive opportunity for them to hopefully, you know, finish the camp and play against Serbia, you know, first and foremost, but also really stake their claim as to whether or not they they deserve to be and want to be a big part of the qualification going forward. So that's really the the biggest objective. But the the second one that goes right hand in hand with it is just that these players walk out of here with a clear understanding of our principles and how we want to play.
0: Love it. Charlie, are you doing all right, Charlie? What, what's
2: that? It's, it's, it's
1: getting hot. It's getting it hot, is. Jason. Oh, God. Are you hot over there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling the heat. Oh, okay. It's yeah. Time for the hot seat. It's time for the hot
2: seat. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know what that was. Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Well, it's it's rapid fire. Honestly, nobody does. Yeah. So oh, okay. You're not Good. the only one. Yeah. So it's just Charlie and I being weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: rapid fire. Give us the first thing that comes off the top of
0: your head. Oh, no. Favorite goal
1: you ever scored?
2: Uh, yeah, my 100th goal.
0: The hardest coaching decision you've had to make?
2: Oh, uh, Whether or not to cut uh, players at the end of my first season as a coach.
1: Favorite game boots of all time?
2: Favorite game boots of all time? Oh man, I don't even remember them. They were the super light Nikes. They were black and red. It was the pair I was wearing to score the 100th goal. <laughs>
1: Okay. Is it a- is it Do you a have vapor? them still? Vapor vapor, 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 vapor,
2: vapor, vapor. Yeah, the very, like the very, maybe the second model ever of the Vapors.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's my favorite. Gosh, there are some good boots. I am <laughs> just thinking about all the ones. Uh, the What do you miss most about your home state of Nebraska?
2: I don't miss much, much from it, to be honest. That's that's real. I hope people uh, from Nebraska aren't watching this, but yeah, I can't think of anything. All right, what
1: is one thing you do as a coach that you hated as a as a player?
2: Oh man, I don't know. I, that's. I'm sure I don't do anything that I hated as a player. Uh, I'm sure of yeah, it. i sure. I'm pretty sure that yeah. I took. I was taking notes of all the things I didn't like from my coaches and making sure I didn't do them. <laughs>
0: All right, we'll let you just think about that one. We'll, yeah, we'll get back the next time you're on the pod. We'll see if you've taken any more notes. Uh, most talented player you've ever coached?
2: Oh, that's such a toss-up. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Frank Lampard.
1: Okay, I didn't expect that.
2: Well, it's just unfair, right? Because it's kind of where they were in their career. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, Kaká is obviously, the, I think, the most overall talented. But yeah. you know, we were working with him when he was literally a little bit on his last legs.
1: Right. You, yeah. you can take your wife Kim anywhere in the world for seven days. Where are you going?
2: Uh, Maui, Hawaii. Ooh,
1: that's a good. That's that's a good oh. place. Tomorrow.
2: But we'd tomorrow go tomorrow. for more. <laughs> we'd go for more than seven days. We we might just <laughs> <Right>. stay there.
0: <laughs> um, something you know now that you wish you did as a player.
2: Uh, to enjoy enjoy myself a bit more.
1: Okay, and then the last one. I know you're ready for this one. The best team initiation performance you've ever witnessed.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I haven't witnessed any of it. I think we're even remotely good, to be honest. <laughs> we, we, we're listening to a whole lot of bad singing and, and, and bad answers to questions, probably similar to the answers I'm giving you right now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you you did okay. You did better than I thought. So
2: we could
0: ask you to sing if you want us to.
2: You, uh, we could. You Podcast could ask. initiation. <laughs> you, you could Podcast certainly initiation. ask. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Um, no,
1: thank uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. F- for taking time out of your your busy day with the, this talented U twenty three squad, um, you know we're all behind you. We're rooting for you. Um yep. We can't wait for qualifying. So uh, continue to get these guys playing at their best, and uh, best of
0: luck.
2: You're welcome. And thanks. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jason.
2: All right. Bye-bye.
1: Jordy, I, I absolutely loved uh, hearing about the U23 team and all the talent they have, but what, what were some of your favorite takeaways in that conversation? I know mine was the '99 season um, that he had, uh, the special MVP year coincide with the birth of his son and him using that as a, as motivation, inspiration, and was able to slow down and just enjoy
0: the game. That was really special. I've actually never spoken with him before. So just I, his presence was really calming, which I thought was really cool just to have that demeanor as a coach. And then the thing that stuck, stuck out to me when he was talking about his career is How it felt when he scored the goal for the national team, because it is accumulation of moments. And I was thinking about those moments in relation to not only his career, but also his coaching career and how everything doesn't always go right, but you know that you're on the path of growth throughout all of it and you keep pursuing what you want to do. And this job for him has been that pursuit of his coaching career. And so I think that was a really cool line I drew between the two things that it was interesting hearing him just speak about both his playing career and his coaching career.
1: Well, it's funny you touched on that because I hadn't had a conversation with him either until last month when I was on a panel with him. And mm-hmm. the only Jason Kreis I knew of was this composed, like fierce competitor on the sidelines, always giving like you a, a stare or a grill you know, a a good game (laughs) at the end of the the match. And that was kind of it. So I never had really had a conversation with him until that panel. And I thought, Oh, you know, he's a great guy. He's, he's interesting, you know, the way he thinks about things and processes things. So, um, and he's, he's learned a lot. So uh, again, I think it's a, a great opportunity for for these players to learn from from Jason Christ and and obviously get into an Olympics.
0: And just a unique opportunity in general, Charlie, to be in camp right now and to have the full men's national team there as well. So they're training amongst each other, with each other, separate from each other. So a lot of big things ahead for both of those squads going into 2021, not only Olympic qualifying, but big games for the full men's national team as well.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. It's, uh, you know, a, a year where... We kind of get to to see what's going to happen when the vaccines are coming out, and, and now we're going to get back to some sort of normalcy. A lot of games, World Cup qualifying, Gold Cup, uh, getting these players acclimated with each other and in the system, I think it's going to be an exciting 2021 for the U.S. program.
0: Charlie, also, there's a lot happening in Florida right now because in Orlando, the U.S. Women's National Team have been training, and it's their annual January camp, which is Always an exciting time, everybody getting back together. Vlako Ananofsky called in 27 players to camp to kick off 2021 with all eyes on doing something that has never been done, following a World Cup with an Olympic gold medal. And honestly, if any team can do it, I'm looking at this team is very capable of that.
1: Oh, this team is motivated and inspired to continue the dominance uh, on the world stage. And, and I, I fully believe that they can do it. And they have the talent... And and they have the mentality. We know about it. We've talked to Vaco about how competitive these, these women are in training. And we'll get a look at this US women, uh, this US women's team on Monday night when they play versus Columbia at 7 p.m. Eastern at Orlando's Exploria Stadium. And, and that game will be broadcasted on Fox Sports One and 2DN. And we could see not only the return of veterans like Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino, which we've been missing for for some time now, but also possibly the debut of 21-year-old Katerina Macario, who was granted FIFA eligibility earlier this week to finally play for the red, white, and blue.
0: Yeah. Charlie, I think we will get to see that. She's had a big week. She signed with a big contract with Leon over in France is officially becoming a professional soccer player, and now she could make her debut as a member of the U.S. Women's National Team. And I know when we talked to Blackco back in October, he said, there's some players that are standing out to me. He wouldn't tell us who. I'm guessing it was Katerina. So it, yep. uh, a lot of exciting things for this team and um, big year. Big year for all three of those teams that we just mentioned.
1: All I have to say to, Kat- to Katerina is, Bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's going to love France. Uh, it's a great country. Obviously, the, the quality of soccer there is extremely high. And um, it, it's it's massive that the U.S. were able to um, get her to make the switch and be eligible for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Women's National Team. Again, yeah. another talented uh, youngster, even though she's 21 years old, in, in the pipeline to, to – kind of embark on her greatness uh, with the US. Yeah.
0: We gotta stop saying youngsters, it makes us feel old. So um but they yeah. are. They really are. Charlie, <laughs> it's it's been so nice to be back. We're officially kicking things back off, getting in the swing of things for 2021 with the US Soccer Podcast. And we can't wait for more awesome interviews and getting to really tap into some of these great players and people that work within US soccer.
1: Couldn't have said it better. We're back. Thanks for listening and tuning in. Don't forget download rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we'll talk to you next week